Revelation chapter 16. And Father, we come before You recognizing that it is not the tribulation that we're studying or that we're looking to. It is Jesus Christ. And that even through these difficult passages, difficult just in terms of their heaviness, Father, um, I, I pray that You help us to see Jesus and to understand, Lord, Your heart. And to come out of here more aware Really, Lord, of your character and your nature, your goodness. And it is not hard to see these things when we are looking at the pages of Scripture through the lens of the person of Jesus. And so we pray you help us to do that tonight. And while there's a lot of information here, Lord, we continue to ask by your Holy Spirit for the revelation of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Loud voice now emits from the command center. You may remember how chapter 15 finished. Verse 8 of chapter 15, the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and His power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And I pointed out, is that the temple on earth or the temple in heaven? It could go either way. Both ways are interesting. Both are intriguing to think about. But when I begin chapter 16, I think, well, perhaps it really is the temple in heaven because there's only one voice coming out of the temple. Because there's only one presence in the temple. No one else can get in. And this is the voice of God. This is the voice of Christ in command. Commanding these judgments. We know that this is the voice of Christ. First, because, as I said, this is the revelation of Jesus. But secondly, because of what Jesus Himself said, John 5.22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him, which is probably a good verse to pass along to a Jehovah's Witness friend. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And John 5.27, He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is Son of Man. Jesus earned the right to judge. And so in Revelation 16, Jesus begins to execute final judgment. The final seven judgments. And it is at the point of no repentance on the earth. We've been talking about this. We've been suggesting that this is coming. That this point where no repentance can or would happen. And if you think about it, this is after 6,000 years of loving kindness. 2,000 years of amazing grace. And finally, we come to seven years of increasingly intense judgment. And the final seven judgments, the bold judgments we introduced a week ago Sunday, are the most severe. Why is that? We'll keep a finger there and turn back to the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 1 And we'll see why. And Paul begins to explain and to lay out in broad and reasoned terms an explanation for 
The settled anger of God. Remember we talked about there are two kinds of anger, two kinds of wrath. There's the settled anger, the orge anger, which means it's, it's settled, it's controlled, it's anger from that righteous position. But then there's also thumos. And thumos is fiery, explosive anger. It is also righteous when it's anger from God. But at this point in Romans 1, it's that settled anger of God And in verse 18, Paul says the wrath, the orge, the settled anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And he continues through the rest of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 and 3 to explain why the wrath of God rests even now in the world. Remember, Jesus said those who reject him are already judged, already have the wrath upon them. And it's experienced in this world and it's felt in this world, that settled anger of God. But then in chapter 2, look down there, Romans chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And we're talking about uh, that absolute rejection and rebellion against God in this world. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul says, but do, you, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The question people ask is often, why would God pour out such harsh judgment on the world as we will see in chapter 16? And it's the wrong question. The right question ought to be, why has He waited so long? Why hasn't He already done it? With the atrocities that have occurred in this world, what is it that make Makes God wait. Why has He put off? Why is He so patient? It's because He understands something, and we got to get this tonight. It's that kindness leads to repentance. Kindness leads to repentance. Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Not the browbeating, and certainly not the judgment. Kindness leads to repentance. Whereas, on the other hand, judgment hardens the rebellious. Kindness leads to repentance. Judgment hardens those who are already rebellious. Not because the judgment is necessarily unfair, but because those who are rebellious reject what's right. Don't want to hear what's right. And don't expect that judgment is for them. And we see this kind of response, this hardening response throughout Revelation 16. Twice in verses 9 and 11, we're told they did not repent. Three times in verses 9, 11, and 21, finally, we learned that they blasphemed God in the midst of all this judgment coming down. Not only did they not repent, but they're blaspheming God. And we recognize in the Bible that the last two times the word repent is even used, it is used to describe those who refuse to do it. It's unrepentance. Because judgment hardens the rebellious. Luke 18, verse 7, Jesus said, Will not God bring about justice 
for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, however, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Kindness leads to repentance. Judgment hardens the rebellious. And it is the kindness of God that has caused him to wait 6,000 years. It is the kindness of God that brought about amazing grace from the cross of Christ to today over 2,000 years. The kindness of God to wait so long until rebellious humanity is too hardened to repent, too hardened to turn. And at that point... Revelation 16. At that point, the bold judgments. Think about it. Even during the tribulation, God synchronized the seal judgments, the first seven, and then the trumpet judgments, the second series of seven judgments. He synchronized these with the sending of 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And with the sending of the two witnesses prophesying and preaching out of Jerusalem. And even as the sound of the seventh trumpet judgment was still ringing in the air, he launches three angelic aviators flying in the midheaven with the last gospel and bringing final warnings. Why? Because the kindness of God leads to repentance. And through all of that, through the entire first half of the tribulation, his hand remains outstretched until we get to chapter 16. With the great tribulation, the final three and a half years, folks, this is no longer about salvation. It is only about judgment. It is purely about judgment. Because God knows judgment hardens the rebellious heart. So the activity here, the bowls of wrath are purely for the sake of wrath and judgment and not to bring about repentance because judgment doesn't do that. Kindness does. With that in mind, his holy angels began tipping the bowls. Verse 2, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast who worshipped his image. Bowl number one. Pus-filled sores. Write it down. Malignant sores. Carcinogenic sores, you might say. Loathsome is the word kakon, and malignant is the word poneron, and these two words in the Greek can either mean evil and wicked, so evil and wicked sores, or physically speaking, destructive and diseased. These are sores that destroy the human body, that disease the human body. I don't know if you saw, I saw a picture in the news of a boy who got a spider bite on his leg and left a gaping hole in his leg. You can check that out. Just Google that. You can see a picture of it. It's disgusting. That's what we're talking about. Malignant sores. Painful, pernicious, pus-filled pimples. (laughs) But not pimples. Boils across their bodies. You know, it's interesting if you begin to track these things that as you go through the seven bowl judgments, five of them parallel five of the plagues of Egypt. So if you're looking at the plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7, 8, 9 in that section, 
and comparing them to the bowl of judgments, you see some interesting similarities. Why? Well, I would suggest to you that early on in the study of the scriptures, you discover in Torah that Egypt is a picture of the world. And so the plagues that come upon Egypt are a foreshadowing, if you will, at least half of them, of what's going to come upon the whole world at the end of time. Exodus chapter 9, verse 8 gives us the sixth plague out of ten. And it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourself handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So Moses does it. Takes some soot out of a kiln, throws it up into the air, and it just spreads out. Which must have been curious as Pharaoh's watching just a handful of soot is just filling the sky and then it begins to land on people. Ah, oh, ah, and boils breaking out all across Egypt. It was a judgment to Egypt. It was a warning also to the people of Israel. Because Moses would later tell the Jewish people, if you do the same thing, if you rebel as the Egyptians, this will fall on you. Let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Down in verse 27, Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Down in verse 35, the Lord will strike you on the knees and the legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. And Isaiah, the prophet, piggybacks off of that. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 5, he says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged or softened with oil. And so the first bowl is tipped and the judgment falls on earth and the reaction is, Boils, but, but note this, specifically on those who took the brand of the beast. Those who get that tattoo mark of the 666, the number of the beast, or the name of the beast, these are the ones who now begin to get these boils, this, this judgment of boils. And you know, it was warned about one of the three angels, the third angel, flying in mid-heaven back in chapter 14. Verse 9, another angel, a third one, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And this is partial fulfillment right here. Sometimes it doesn't take long for prophecy to be fulfilled. The angel gives a prophetic word of warning. And here we see with the very first bowl being tipped over and poured out that these boils are coming upon specifically those who took the mark. Probably seemed like a good idea to take the mark. Well, everyone else is doing it, you know. I mean, I may not be a big fan of the beast or the Antichrist or this world leader, but... You know, I got to buy and sell. I got to get by, right, in my life. I got to do what needs to be done to survive. Yeah, put it on my hand. Stamp it on my forehead. 
The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the way is unto death. And this is part and parcel of what's going on here. These painful, putrid blisters, they break out. Where are people going to go for relief? Well, sometimes it's curative to go down to the seashore because you know the salt water can, can help cure. It may sting a little bit, but it, it has some healing value to it. I remember having a really bad cold. My family was in Hawaii on vacation. I got this horrible cold. And my mom said, well, go on out and swim in the ocean. I'm like, are you crazy? I've got a cold. You never would have told me to do that at home. Yeah, we're on vacation. The sun's out. It's warm. Go, go swim. I swam. The next day I was fine. Because there is something about the salt water and the sea. Or, or maybe people will head to the rivers and the streams where they can get some fresh water, you know, to try and, and rub and, and to soothe these painful boils. Well, verse 3 tells us the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood. Like that of a dead man and everything living in the sea died. Bowl number two, a sea of blood. Now, it could be that he's referring to the Mediterranean Sea because it's the local sea. It tends to be the sea that is referred to when you're talking to or about Israel. But the context, I think, implies all the salt water, all the seas of the earth. Though the word sea is singular, the context implies all the seas because we're going to see the same thing happen to all the rivers and streams of the world. So I think we're talking about the oceans of the world now, and it's also in contrast to the second trumpet judgment. Do you remember what happened then? Revelation chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, a third of the sea became blood. Well, now it's all sea is blood. A third of the creatures at that time died. Now it's all the sea creatures will die. A third of the ships sailing were destroyed. Implied, it doesn't say it, but implied here now all the ships are sinking. And all these sea creatures now floating in thick red blood. It's a lot of blood in the Bible. It happens to be a pretty bloody book. Because it all centers in on the reality of life, which is our blood, our blood is our life. Leviticus 11, or 17 verse 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And if you want proof, go ahead and go to a blood bank and give it all and see how you do. <laughs> I give one pint. I got to down orange juice and cookies just to get off the table. The blood is the life. Our physical lives depend on blood. But it's more than that. For Leviticus 11 is prophetic. It continues saying, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement the life of Christ. And every drop of His blood was shed so that our eternal lives might be received. Our eternal lives depend on the blood of Christ. Without it, we'd be floating like dead sea creatures in the sea of humanity. We can't make it there without the blood of Jesus. So, so God created blood, put blood in us as a picture from the very beginning that when He gave His blood, every drop of it, we would understand the love of God and we would understand the vitality of Christ and we would understand the vast importance of the blood. But notice this blood is not living blood. This is blood like that of a dead man, it says. 
This is dead blood. Nasty, dark, thick, congealing, hot, sticky, stinking, dead blood. And the people have the boils and they're, they're in great pain and they rush to the sea and there's nothing but blood. Where to next? Fresh water. Verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. So bowl number three now causes rivers of blood. All the rivers, all the streams are now pumping blood. This reminds us of the first plague of Egypt, doesn't it? Plague on the Nile. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. He lifted up the staff and he struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And blood was through all the land of Egypt. Anyone know how long the Nile River was bloody? You remember? Seven days. Seven days as a foreshadowing of seven years of tribulation. The Nile River was nothing but blood. But this, this blood judgment here also brings to mind the third trumpet judgment, Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, where a third of the fresh waters were made bitter by wormwood. Remember, wormwood, the star falls. And a third of the waters now become bitter and undrinkable, but now all the freshwater rivers and streams on planet Earth have become blood. I can't even imagine the horror of that. Years ago, Cheryl and I were watching, oh, it was was some evening uh, movie on ABC or something. I forget what it was, but it was a, a thriller. And these police were trying to investigate a murder that had apparently happened in this house. And, and they investigated the whole house. And it was a son of, a, of an older mother and father who lived in the house who apparently committed this murder. And they couldn't find anything. And so they, they sprayed this stuff on the wall. So I told you this example before. The investigators sprayed this stuff on the wall. And they said, what this will do is once it cures, is it will glow if there's any blood. So we'll be able to see it. And there's a horrifying moment because the couple go to bed that night and he flips off the light and the entire room is just covered in this glow. And you realize that a bloodbath murder had happened in that room. Can you imagine? You go down to the beach and there's nothing but blood as far as your eye can see. You, you go to the local stream or river and there's nothing but blood and the smell of the blood and the coagulating on the land and, and just, I mean, thick, horrible. Horrible. Three-fourths of the green planet, planet Earth, three-fourths of the green planet is blue. It's fresh or salt water. And it's all going to become a sickening red. And what's interesting to me is what we see in verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters. Whoa, wait a minute. There's an angel of the waters? Man, they got angels for everything. This is the angel of the waters. And what this tells us, it reminds us, and especially if you've read through the Scriptures, you see this in other ways. Angels are given regional and environmental responsibilities. This is the angel that oversees the waters, has supervisory authority over the waters of planet Earth. Exxon Valdez oil spill, he was there. He saw it. 
Flint, Michigan water crisis of 2016? Oh, he knew. He was fully aware of it. This is the angel of the waters. And he keeps his eyes on the waters of the planet. Which tells us something about the Lord, and that is that the Creator cares about His creation. That He has oversight of various regions and areas. I don't know if there's an angel of the mountains, an angel of the trees. You know, I don't want to get weird on you. But we know at least there's an angel of the waters whose job it is to oversee the waters of the earth because God, note this, I'm only going to say it once, God is a true environmentalist. He's the only true environmentalist. Now, God's no tree hugger. In fact, He's got the whole world in His hands. But God cares about His creation mightily. It matters to Him. What happens on the planet matters to Him. And what He's doing here in these plagues, in these outpourings of wrath, not because He doesn't care about the earth. In fact, He's taking it through a cleansing process. He's washing it out. God alone, as the single true environmentalist, will save the planet for His kingdom. That's, that's His plan. That's His goal. When the kingdom begins, when people are ushered into the millennial kingdom on the planet, it's going to be restored to Eden-like qualities. Pristine. Beautiful. Fresh. This is a temporary judgment, but it is a necessary judgment that God is going to do what He will do with this planet because it's His. It belongs to Him. He created it. He can do whatever He wants with it. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 11.36 So what can we do? Just staying on this track for a moment of environmentalism. I want to know what the best thing you can do to be a good steward of the planet. If you have an environmental bent, if you love the trees and the seas and the streams and the mountains and you want to care for planet Earth, the number one absolute best thing you can do for the environment, be born again. Be born again. First and foremost. And then be a good steward of what we have. Don't litter. You know, take care of things. Recycle. But be born again. Why is that so important? Because Romans 8, verse 18 tells us, the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Which means if you're not born again, you may be one of the reasons why the creation is groaning right now. It's waiting for you. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Be born again. That the sons and daughters of God, the children of God, can be revealed, and in that revelation, God then will bring about the most wonderful environmental refresh that the planet has ever seen. And He will do it. But, in the meantime, imagine what the angel of the waters is thinking at this point when it's all blood. What would you say? (laughs) What? 
Why not do the angel of the mountains, Lord? Knock a couple of his hills over. But the angel of the waters, no, in fact, praises God, even as he sees his entire aqueous influence inundated with blood. He praises God. I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were. Note he leaves out who is to come because Jesus is coming. O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Careful, note this. They deserve it. They deserve it. Literally in the Greek there, it is they are worthy of this. Blood everywhere. The second and third bold judgments are a divine reckoning for the world's history of human bloodletting, of human killing, of murder, of bloodshed, from Abel all the way to the prophets, to Jesus Himself, whose blood was most precious. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you my opinion, and I think it's the right one on this, that it would take all of humanity's blood to try and pay back the blood that Jesus gave, and it still wouldn't be enough. It would not be good enough. But since Jesus, what about school kids, theater goers, movie goers? How much blood has been lost by the innocent unborn just in our country? Countless Christian martyrs, past and future. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Because to make some sense out of all this blood, God's not just trying to be gross. You know, if, if Revelation 16 was written by Pastor Rick, okay, I give that to you. Pus and blood. He's just trying to be gross. God's not trying to be gross. God is intentionally judging for sin committed. Which is why the boils come on those who take the mark of the beast. It's It's... Quid pro quo. And now why there's blood on the earth because of all the blood that has been spilled by humankind. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. The Hebrew pastor says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so there is a blood pouring, an outpouring of blood on earth in judgment of all the blood that has been poured out on planet earth. And you know what is a remarkable thing to me? Is how great a contrast that day will be from right now. The contrast? See, on that day, 
Blood is required. Right now, anyone can come to Jesus. Look over at Hebrews 12, 24. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel. The blood of anyone who lost or gave their life, whether as a, a martyr intentionally, or a victim unintentionally. All of that blood that cries out from the ground, cries out for one thing, justice. Justice. But the blood of Christ cries mercy, grace, forgiveness. The blood of Christ, which is ours now. He he says in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused Him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. That's what makes God's grace so amazing today. We don't deserve it. We are not worthy of it. But we get it by faith in Jesus. By contrast, all of this blood poured out back in chapter 16. They deserve it. They are worthy. That's what we're deserving of. Blood. We are deserving of rivers of blood. We are deserving of oceans of blood. And of boils on the skin. That's what humanity is worthy of. Is deserving of. And yet, right now, today, we get grace. I shared earlier this morning, I just sometimes, when I read these things and consider where we sit today, and the mercy that God has offered, and the grace that is extended to all people, I have a hard time understanding why anyone would not receive that. Why would we not accept the kindness of God that is completely undeserved and yet is offered? I don't understand. The kindness of God. Do, do, you, do you stop and think about the kindness of God from time to time? Has He been kind to you? Can, can you name a few things in the last year, perhaps, that were kindnesses of God that were not really deserved, but He just did it? for you it blows my mind to think that with the awesome gift completely free of grace that is ours right now why people still go nah no I really don't no no thanks but but compared to then grace is for the receiving now another extraordinary voice chimes in with agreement to this judgment of blood, if you look at verse 7, and I heard, note this, the altar. The altar. He doesn't say, I heard those beneath the altar. He doesn't say, I heard someone from the altar. He says, I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The altar speaks. That'll alter your perspective. John sees... Now, now, was this visionary? Was this literal? I, I take it, you know, as I've said, I take it literally. He doesn't give me any other reason to, to think otherwise other than it's an altar and I've never seen an altar talk. But the altar speaks. 
and says, yes, righteous and true. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty. Yes, this is spot on. And there's all kinds of discussion among commentators about is this the actual altar in heaven? Is this another angel speaking from an altar? Are these the martyred saints? That's a popular one. Oh, it must be the voices of the martyred saints beneath the altar because we read about them back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. I don't think it is. I think it's the altar. By the way, if you want to know which altar, I would suggest to you that this is not the altar of incense. Some have said, well, maybe it was the angel at the altar of incense who's now speaking. We saw him back in Revelation chapter 8. Now, it's not the altar of incense. Why do you say that? Because this altar knows all about sacrifice and blood. This altar understands the connection between blood and righteousness, which is why it's significant that this altar is saying true and righteous are your judgments. This is the altar that knows sacrifice. This is the altar that was cleansed with blood. Hebrews 13, verse 10, we have an altar. By the way, this is maybe not the altar you're thinking of. If you're thinking of the bronze altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle and later the temple, I would suggest to you it is yet a different altar, perhaps, that is speaking. Hebrews 13, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. There is an altar that knows blood sacrifice. The cross of Jesus Christ. Well, Rick, are you suggesting the cross is speaking here? I I don't know. I'm saying the altar is speaking because that's what John says and it's an altar that understands blood and righteousness and sacrifice. But whatever is actually happening here, we do have an altar that alters us, that changes us. The blood of Christ does something to the blood of Rick. The broken body of Christ does something to the body of Rick, that the Spirit of Jesus does something to the Spirit of, of Rick. That the cross of Christ has changed me and continues to change me from the inside out. The cross alters us. One more note about the blood. When it comes to this point in the tribulation and this now third bowl of God's wrath having been poured out, you need to realize that life immediately becomes unsustainable. How how, how do you sustain life without water when all you have is blood? How do you even live? And if this is toward the beginning of the final three and a half years, how are they going to even make it three and a half years? People have asked that question. How are they going to make it there? How are they going to get there? If everything's blood and everything's going down, that's going down as described in the bull judgments. Well, understand this judgment while intense is apparently brief. It's not permanent. Everything becomes blood. But at some point, fresh water starts to return. The seas start to clean up a bit. You know, it was interesting, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, people thought it would take generations to clean up. And remarkably, even the non-believer had to say, wow, this planet really 
was made in such a way that it cleanses itself. I mean, that, that oil spill began to shrink in, in a remarkable way. I'm not saying it wasn't a terrible accident that took place, but it is remarkable how quickly the earth begins to rejuvenate. Well, our rejuvenating, refreshing Creator made it that way. And that's going to take place. That this blood that's in streams and rivers and oceans is going to begin to dissipate and be replaced again with fresh water. Well, how do you know that for sure? I know it because of something Jesus does. Do you remember? Psalm 110. Immediately after Armageddon. Psalm 110 verse 6 says, He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There is a sweet moment there where the king of kings in his return will kneel down by a sweet water brook and dip his hand and drink. So we know by then the blood's got to be gone. The fresh water will return. It'll wash away the blood from the brooks and streams and rivers and seas. It'll take it all out. And note, it will cleanse the earth. And if you are washed in the blood now, you don't have to face that. You don't have to be there for that. You don't have to wonder how in the world you're going to quench the thirst or soothe the boils if you're washed in the blood today. Because His blood is a cleansing flood. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out His bowl, note this, upon the sun. And it was given to it to scorch men with fire. The fourth trumpet judgment saw a similar thing where the sun was dimmed by a third and now it is, it is being heated up. It's being heated up. So, opposite, growing brighter. You know, there's something scientific, I think, going on here. Something we can understand. The sun has been burning off energy. Any of you who've studied this know this. It's been burning off energy since creation. It has been giving out massive amounts of nuclear energy. It comes right off of the sun. It's how it heats the planet. It's how it, it lights the planet. And this has been going on, you know, for 6,000 years. It cannot last. It is one of the proofs against the theory of evolution which continues to get bigger and bigger, billions and billions of years that the earth has been here. It is impossible because our sun would have burned itself out. The sun is giving off energy. It is not being replenished. And something happens at the end of the lifetime of a star. When its nuclear fuel is finally exhausted and it no longer supports the release of nuclear energy, it collapses in a massive explosion of heat and of force. It's called a supernova. And I think right here, bowl number four, the bowl is poured out and the sun goes supernova. It scorches. It becomes incredibly intense and hot and burning. What I've described to you in terms of the sun giving off heat and losing heat and and aging, and eventually it will have to go supernova like any star would, well, it's the second law of thermodynamics. It's also called the law of entropy, which states, quote, as usable matter or energy is irretrievably lost, disorganization, randomness, and chaos increase. By the way, again, it's the opposite of evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory states that things are getting more organized, but nature proves to us things get less organized. 
Ask anyone over the age of 50 in our fellowship. (laughs) Things break down. Things don't work as well. Pains and anguishes and all kinds of stuff I'm not even going to go into right now. Because as things age, they break down. They don't get more organized. They, They become... From organization to disorganization, from order to chaos, that's the direction of things, not the other way around. Evolution would stay out of chaos came order. It's impossible. We've never seen that work in the natural world. And what's going on with the sun is we see it, it burns down to its final point and it goes supernova. Now I think supernaturally supernova. Because this is right at the timing of the outpouring of the fourth bowl. This is under the hand of God. It is by the work of God that now what was orderly has descended into disorder and chaos and it erupts in a supernova explosion and it fries the ozone and it begins to scorch people on the planet. Organization to chaos. The other day... Cheryl asked Naomi, my 13-year-old, she said, why can't you just keep your room clean? Now I know none of you parents have ever asked your kids that. Why can't you just keep your room clean? Naomi's response, Mom, it's the second law of thermodynamics. By nature, things go from order to chaos. Why clean my room if it's just going to be chaos again? No, she said this. It's hard to have a smart kid. How do you argue that? This appears to be what's happening here. The sun goes supernatural, supernova. Massive heat and energy are released. Again, the ozone is fried and people begin to get fried. People begin to get burned right and left. And it's another judgment that is both fitting and foretold. Fitting and foretold. Psalm 21, verse 9, says, You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will devour them. Malachi, the prophet, chapter 4, verse 1, said, Behold, a day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. What is he doing? Well, he's already been splashing blood out to cleanse the land, to cleanse the world. Now he's bringing the heat of the sun to burn bravado. Leaving it scorched like stubble. Piping hot pride is charred like chaff. All of that... Hot pride of man becomes a hot mess in this bold judgment of God. And you know what's taking place? Hearts are getting harder. Verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. By the way, everybody knows where they're coming from. Everyone on the planet knows what decision they made. They chose the beast over the Christ. They know that the plagues are coming from God, which is why they're blaspheming God. They're shouting Him down. They're yelling back. They're demeaning the very name of the Creator. And they did not repent so as to give Him glory. What is it again that leads to repentance? It's kindness. Romans 2.4 Man, that's a verse to know. 
The kindness of God leads you to repentance. But you know, for every judgment of tribulation, you can mark an opposite grace right now. For everything that's going to come negatively in harsh and difficult and painful judgment, right now there is grace if we'll take it. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 continues after saying they will be set ablaze. He says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall and I can't wait to see Glenn Mao do that. <laughs> See, Glenn, you think if you sit in the back, you're not going to get tagged. It just doesn't work. <laughs> I can't wait. I mean, think about it. It's such a beautiful picture that we are going to skip about like calves from the stall. Woohoo! As the Son of Righteousness rises with healing, that's the kindness of God. That's the offer to you and to me right now. Fear His name. Fear God. Love God. Accept His grace right now and you will know the kindness of God. By the way, has God been kind to you? Ricky already asked us that. I know, I'm just asking again. Think about the kindness of God. Man, if you forget everything else we studied tonight, I hope you go home thinking about the kindness of God. Well, the sun goes supernova and then out. Verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. So the waters are all blood. They have nothing to drink. Everything has gone completely dark. And on top of that, they still have the boils. They're dying of thirst. They're sunburned like you've never been sunburned in your life. Because, well, when the core of a star or a sun goes supernova and explodes... It leaves behind what scientists call a black hole. Darkness. And so now there is utter darkness. Bowl number five, but note this, it's specific. It is darkness over all the kingdom of Antichrist. It is designated darkness. And it's appropriate. You want to go dark? You want to live in darkness? You want to choose evil and wickedness? I'll give you dark. And the world goes dark. Wait, Rick, you said the kingdom of Antichrist goes dark. Listen up. Mark chapter 13, verse 24 says, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. But John writes that this bowl is again poured out on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom will become darkened. What's the throne of the beast? Note this, it'll be for a, a future study. The throne of the beast? Babylon. Babylon. I fully believe that Babylon will be rejuvenated and renewed and will be the capital city of Antichrist, the throne of the beast. But the kingdom of the beast more likely refers to planet Earth. Why do you say that? Revelation 13, verse 2. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And his throne and his power, the dragons, Satan's, he's the god of this world. That's his domain right now. And that's what he hands over to Antichrist. And so 
The kingdom of the beast is the world. The world goes absolutely dark. But this is also supernatural. For you would assume if the sun goes completely supernova and then leaves a big black hole in the sky and there's no light, there'd be darkness everywhere on earth. Well, that's true, except for three exceptions. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Because Daniel 11.41 says these are rescued out of Antichrist's hands. These are not part of his kingdom. Why, why there? Well, perhaps because, and we've talked about these three Transjordanian uh, ancient nations that are Jordan today, perhaps because they have fully repented and turned to the Lord, but I think even more so because this is the hideout of Israel. Basra in Edom. Selah, the rock in the wilderness. Petra, perhaps. Israel's there. Wouldn't it be fascinating? I don't want to be here for it. I really don't want to see it that badly. But wouldn't it be fascinating to be here and to recognize utter pitch darkness everywhere, but right over there in Edom and Moab and Ammon, light still shines. How does that work? Well, they all know how it works. This is an act of God. This is a punishment of the Lord. Now, this blackout, the fifth angel's darkness poured out from the bowl is the fourth blackout of the end times and it's the most pervasive. And all of this darkness was forewarned. All of this was prophesied from 2,500 to 2,800 years ago by Joel and Isaiah and Nahum and Amos and Zephaniah and others. And Joel wrote in Joel chapter 2, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom. Well, here it is. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, there's a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be anything after it. Again, to the years of many generations. You know what that tells us? That after this great darkness, there are years of many generations. What's that? Anyone? That's the millennial kingdom. That's a, that's a hint of the coming kingdom that comes after the darkness. And Jesus ties in with this this warning, this prophetic warning of darkness. He ties in a beautiful promise of light. Check this out. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. And they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound very cheery. Well, hang on. In this plague, in this darkness... By the way, the ninth plague of Egypt was also deep darkness. So there's another connection to the plagues of Egypt. Remember, it was darkness then for three days. Now, perhaps for three years. And it's a darkness now. That was just darkness. Now it includes tongue-gnawing pain. And I realize that this is how Jesus describes hell. Perhaps it's a preview. That is utter darkness, burning heat, gnashing teeth. Well, Jesus says they will be thrown into the furnace of fire and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then He says, Matthew thirteen forty three, Oh, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And Jesus uses this unusual encouragement. And He's quoting Isaiah, who 
is himself quoting Jesus in the first place. But Isaiah offers an encouragement to faithful hidden Israel at this time in the tribulation. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be upon you. And again, we see this one element of the entire world where there's light. Where Jesus will return. Remember how He comes to Basra and Eden, Edom before He goes up to Megiddo and sets foot on the Mount of Olives? And He comes and the light will rise upon them. The glory of Jesus on the people of Israel. And I'm telling you this because even in the midst of darkness, do you realize that for some people, darkness signals light? Doesn't it for you? If not, let it. Because the darker this world gets, the more evident is the light. The darker this world gets, the more clear it is to me that the light is approaching. That the light is closer and closer and closer. See, that's us. Not Israel in the wilderness, in the tribulation. But Christians in the world right now who know, who see, who discern the darkness. Who discern the demonic activity. Who recognize what's happening on our planet. And we have two options. We can shake our heads and say, woe is us, poor Christians. Or we can say, praise the Lord, it's getting dark because the light is on the way. Arise Shine. Isn't that what Paul says? Ephesians 4. Christians, man, arise and let the Christ shine upon you. So we live looking for the light. We live in the light. In fact, there's light available to us right now, no matter how dark it gets. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Second Corinthians 4 4. There's another reality here with light and darkness. And it's simply that when people turn to the Lord, suddenly there's light. And I'm not just talking about the Bible makes more sense. Oh, that's true. Give your life to Jesus and you begin to understand His Word like you couldn't before. And I don't just mean that spiritual things make more sense to you. The Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, Jesus Himself... Fellowship with brothers and sisters, a love of worship. I mean, these things, yeah, these all come to light. But 2 Corinthians 3.16 simply says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And you know, I I believe that means you have discernment over all kinds of things. Not even necessarily what we would call Christian things. I think you just see stuff. You're alert to things you wouldn't have been alert to before. The discernment of a follower of Jesus Christ increases tenfold, thirty, a hundredfold over a non-believer. And it's why we see people choosing and accepting and believing in things. And it doesn't make any sense. You watch the news for five minutes and you go, I don't understand our legislatures. What they're I don't how can they even AOC, how can you tweet that? You look so ridiculous. Well, what, Rick, you think you're so smart? No, but you know what? I see stuff. I do. 
And as a follower of Jesus, the more I turn to the Lord, the more I follow Him, the more I am fixed on Jesus, the more I see and understand this world. You want to be an idiot in the world, don't follow Jesus. But you want to be wise. You want to have eyes that see. You want clarity. You want to walk in the light. Then you walk in the light as He is in the light. And you will see far more clearly. The sixth bowl, verses 12 through 16, is concerned with the campaign of Armageddon. The seventh bowl, verses 17 through 21, pours out final judgment on the one, note this, the one sin Jesus called unforgivable, and it's blasphemy. And what have people been doing this through this whole cataclysmic event. We're going to come back and look at those at later studies because there's not time to deal with those. And I have one more thing I have to share with you tonight. But what have people been doing throughout all of this outpouring of judgment? Look again at verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. There is a theme that runs through this chapter. It is a heavy chapter. And if you just try and go at it for the information and the knowledge and the understanding, it's a depressing chapter because it is dark and it is fiery and it is bloody and it is judgment. And you end it just reading through it going, whoa. But, but if you come at this chapter recognizing the character of God and what he's up to. Oh, it's a, it's a completely different thing. Here's the theme. I already told it to you when we began. The theme running through this chapter, kindness leads to repentance. Judgment hardens the rebellious. It's kindness that leads to repentance. But it's judgment, as we read here, that hardens the rebellious. And so the world responds in kind to the judgments of God now poured out in this short period of time The world responds with more rebellion, no repentance, and increased blasphemy against God. You might read through this and say, okay, well, if if that's true, and I, I believe it is, that judgment hardens rebellion, then why, why does God judge? Why not just be kind? Time for kindness has ended. Because the kindness of God all the way up to Revelation 16, if we could put a a time stamp there, the kindness of God all the way up to that point is now used up. Oh, not from God's perspective, but from man's. There is no more repentance. There is no one who will even at this point receive the kindness of God. There is only room for judgment. And as we said in an earlier study, God must judge If God doesn't judge, He's not a fair judge. He's not an impartial God. He must judge. He must bring judgment. And so this time, foreseen from the beginning of the world, must fall, must come. It is the kindness of God that has pushed it off for so long. But I want you to see something and consider it in this context tonight. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bibles. We'll end there. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Find your way down to verse 22. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, which is what he describes in the preceding verses 19, 20, and 21. But then Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now note this. Paul writes out this really remarkable list, and it's not random. There are no random lists in the Bible, whether it's names and genealogies or the fruit of the Spirit or the spiritual gifts or anything that's listed out in Scripture. It's never random. Just, wow, love's a good one. And we should throw some joy and peace in there. That's nice too. Patience, that could be a fruit. No, that's not what Paul's doing. He is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and what he is writing here is the character of God. How do you know? Because it's not the fruits of the Spirit. If it was the fruits of the Spirit, it'd be, sep- it'd be nine separate fruits that he gives out. This is the fruit of the Spirit, which tells us this is what emerges where the Spirit is present because it's the character of God. So you, you could just as easily read verse 22, the nature of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's God. That's His nature. So when the fruit of the, when the Spirit is on me, when I live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, then that fruit is going to emerge because the Spirit's here. That's His name. That's what He does. And if Christ is in me, then As Christ is loving, guess what I'm going to be? I'm going to love. Because He's here. I can't not love if Jesus is present. I'm going to know joy because Jesus is here. And peace because Christ is present. And so the fruit of the Spirit, it's kind of like you say the fruit of the apple tree. You don't say the fruits of the apple tree. You say the fruit of the apple tree because it's an apple tree. That's the kind of tree it is. And it gives fruits. The fruit of the Spirit. This is who the Spirit of God is. You want proof of these nine qualities of God Himself? (laughs) 6,000 years of loving kindness. 2,000 years of nothing but amazing grace. Compared to seven years of judgment and only a short, scant period of time where repentance isn't even happening anymore in the bowl of judgments compared to all of history where God has given His kindness. We can see it. We see it throughout history. The love of God and the joy and the peace of God. We see and we experience even today His patience. You know He's waiting for some of you right now? Why would God do this to me? How about why is God still waiting for you? The patience of God. The kindness of God. The goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Oh, how about the self-control of God? Man, I would have blasted the earth to kingdom come years ago. God has self-control. It's not time. I wonder if there are like, you know, staff meetings in heaven and angels going, Lord, you got to do something about this. It's not time. Self-control. Jesus saying, you know, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. I have that power. I have that authority. I could do it. Self-control. These are all character traits of God. What's the point? Please get this. 
judgment is rarely effective evangelism. Because judgment hardens a heart. There was a whole style of preaching in our culture not long ago, a few decades back, really. I mean, you still see it emerge every now and then, but the whole hellfire and brimstone and damnation preaching, you know, the pastor pounding the pulpit and, and threatening with hell and, and all. You know, it's not a very effective tool. The guy walking down the street with a sandwich board, turn or burn, it's not really that effective a tool. Now, I will say this much. If one person comes to faith in Jesus because of a hellfire damnation sermon, I'm glad the sermon was preached. They will be too until all eternity. But speaking generally, judgment does not soften a heart. It hardens a heart. Parents learn this. You learn to be careful with your children to choose your battles, what you're going to fight and what you're not. Because you know if you push too hard in a certain direction, it's just going to harden the child. And God understands this. Judgment is rarely effective evangelism. You know what the most effective evangelism is? Kindness. Because it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Romans 2.4 I don't think any of us looking at Revelation 16 consider this a good manual for evangelism. Just do that. You know, a little bloodletting, some fierce heat. Shout them down, warn them of hell, get them gnawing their tongues, and then you got them. (laughs) But you know what? Revelation 16 is couched in kindness. How can you say that? Because we're reading it right now. In the age of grace. We're reading it at a time where God is still saying, Will you receive my love? Will you receive my blood? I took the heat for you at the cross. I would imagine the pain at some point was so bad for Jesus that he was gnawing his tongue a bit. I did that for you. And even as we read the warning, the loving, kind, generous warning that God is giving of what will come upon this planet, we sit here in the middle of the age of grace where there is time to repent. Judgment is not good evangelism. You know what is? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Here's what I'm getting at. I'll leave you with this. The fruit of the Spirit is not only our pleasure as followers of Jesus, it is our responsibility. Which is why Paul ends Galatians 5 saying, if we say we live by the Spirit, let us what? Walk by the Spirit. Which means a step of love. A step of kindness. A step of patience. Another step of self-control. Why live by the Spirit? Just take one step at a time. Walk by the Spirit and recognize love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are our best means of sharing the Gospel. That's how you'll get someone to listen about Jesus. Not by telling them they're six sinners. Not by calling out all of their depravity, but just saying, look, God loves you so much. He cares so deeply for you that right now He's not judging the world. He's holding off judgment so that you have time right now to repent.
Repent. Well, that sounds harsh. No, no, just turn. That's all it means. Turn to the Lord, because while judgment hardens a heart, the kindness of God leads to repentance. That is our best evangelism. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God, we thank You for Your kindness. We bask tonight in the glow of Your self-control. And we recognize and we praise You for Your patience. Because Lord, I know I'm not alone in this. Every single one of us in this room has needed and continues to need You to be patient with us while we learn how to love each other. While we learn how even in a dark world to live with joy. Father, while we settle for peace in a world that is anything but peaceful. And Father, this this singular fruit, this singular character trait that stands out to us tonight, that belongs to You is kindness. The kindness of God. And so I pray, Father, that through kindness You will make us more evangelistic. That it will be Your kindness in us that allows us the privilege of leading someone to repentance. Father, help us to practice that on each other. Kindness for one another. Where we might want to lash out or express anger or dissatisfaction or frustration. Father, just help us to take that singular spiritual step of kindness even right here in this place among brothers and sisters. That we would practice kindness here to offer kindness in the marketplace. That the world will know Your love. And while there is yet time, we'll receive it. Father, we don't know how long. If it's a week, if it's a month, if it's a year, a decade. Father, however much time we have, I pray that You will teach us this kindness. Just to be more like Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, indwell us, baptize us again, anoint us so that we can walk and the fruit of the Spirit may be seen in our lives for the glory of Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen. And if you have yet to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, now is the time of grace. Now is the time of kindness. It will not last. It cannot last if God be a true and fair judge. But now kindness is available. And now Jesus is reaching His hand out to you and now He's saying, just believe me. Trust me. Follow me. Come to me. You will find no kinder offer in your entire life. If there's anything else that we can pray for you about, you can bring that too. But won't you come? Come to Jesus tonight.